I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. We accelerate ideas into real companies through the Tacklebox membership, and we think through startup strategy every Wednesday on the Idea to Start Up Podcast. You're here because you're thinking about an idea, or you're ready to launch something, or you already launched something and you're running full steam ahead. We're here to help with the counterintuitive stuff. On to it. I got an email the other day, and it's what today's pod's about, so we're going to get right into it. This was the email. It was used with permission, of course. Hey, Brian. Love the pod. I've told a ton of people about it. It is so insightful. Quick podcaster's note here. People ask all the time how to get better response rates on their cold emails, and I just cannot express to you how far flattery goes. If your first sentence is about you, for example, hi stranger, I'm the CEO of blah blah and I'm trying to blah blah blah, your response rate is going to be a hair over zero no matter what you're offering because, as always, no one cares about you. This may sound obvious, but almost every cold email I've ever seen starts like that. However, if your first sentence is, hi stranger, you're the, followed by literally anything nice, your response rate's going to go up 100x because, again, as always, everyone just cares about themselves. And I'm no exception. So the flattery worked, and not only did I keep reading, but I made a podcast about it. The email continued. I have a startup idea that I love, and I know this might sound weird, but I don't want to work 100-hour weeks. Or, honestly, even 60-hour weeks. I've got a family and hobbies and friends, and I'm just wondering, can I work nine to five on a startup and be successful? Is that possible? This is the type of email that breaks my heart. I'm a firm believer that most people who should start businesses don't, and that most of the businesses that are started probably shouldn't be. Because the thing that generally catalyzes someone to start a business isn't the insight that business is based on, but their lifestyle flexibility. If you're 22 and you've got no obligations or opportunity costs, sure, you're going to start something. But that means there's a limited number of things you have unique insight into solely because you just haven't had that many unique experiences yet. On the other hand, if you're 42 and married with kids and you've got a great job, you might have super unique insight into the supply chain complexities of companies trying to become carbon neutral, especially if you've been working on the problem for the past 10 years. But your lifestyle is about as flexible as my dad's lower back. No offense, dad. And overcoming those lifestyle hurdles feels unlikely. So lots of businesses with weak insights get started by people with lifestyle flexibility and lots of businesses that could have been great remain in that potential founder's head. Obviously, I'm passionate about this and it's a big part of what we do at Tacklebox, but this email got me thinking about it even deeper than normal. I need to make sure that people that don't have 100 hours a week to work can still work on their startup ideas. How can we coax these founders out? How can we help them optimize their time and only work on businesses that make sense and activities that truly push those businesses forward? And that reminded me of another conversation I had a few months ago. And don't worry, this is all going to tie together, hopefully. A friend had introduced me to someone they'd worked with who was retiring and wanted to get into startup investing. We hopped on a Zoom. We talked startups and we talked about the businesses he'd started over the years. There was an HVAC repair company and a super high-end chocolate importing business and a marketplace for niche motorcycle parts. We geeked out on perspective. Each business he'd started was maniacally focused on asymmetric information, something he knew that no one else did that really mattered. He'd spend six months to a year finding and fleshing out that asymmetry 
deciding if it was strong enough to anchor a company. And then he'd spend five to seven years building out that business and in one case sold it and the other two hired a CEO to run it while retaining a large equity stake and collecting a dividend. He owned three houses. He said that every business he started fundamentally changed his customer's business. That's the only type of business he would ever work on, and he stress tested for that first. I was taking furious notes, which he seemed to like. Then he asked if I knew how his kid was so good at lacrosse. I smiled and shook my head, no. He said his kid was on scholarship at a top five lacrosse school in the country, and he said it was because of one thing. And could I guess it? Again, I shook my head. His eyesight, he said proudly. I wasn't sure what to make of this, and I made a weird joke about having good genes, but he cut me off. Oh, no, no, no. This wasn't genes, and this wasn't an accident. This was asymmetric information, he continued. Do you know what the average eyesight of an NBA player is? No, I said, but I assume really good. 2010, he replied. And do you know how many need corrective lenses? Again, I said no. He was milking it. The guy was a good storyteller. Only about 8%, and they're skewed towards the seven-footers. Almost no guards or skill players need glasses. But 60% of the general population the same age as NBA players need glasses, and their average eyesight is 8 to 10 times worse. He then rattled off baseball stats, which I forget, but were even more impressive. Maybe 5% of baseball players need glasses, and they were basically all pitchers. Professional athletes, he concluded, have superhuman vision. Most people think that's A, something you're born with, and B, less important than actual athleticism, but they're wrong on both counts. You can dramatically improve hand-eye coordination, and hand-eye coordination is more important than sheer speed or jumping ability in nearly every sport because there's a bigger delta between professional athletes and normal people in eyesight than there is with any other attribute. Also, he said, we stink at measuring eyesight and we don't measure hand-eye coordination at all, so you can't really tell when someone is 10 times better at it than a peer. And that's why people don't try to improve it, because it's hard to measure, which means it's hard to manage. He continued, if I asked you to improve your hand-eye coordination, what would you do? I smiled and waited for him to continue, assuming this was rhetorical, but apparently it wasn't. Eventually I answered, um, I don't know. Damn right you don't, he boomed. This guy absolutely loved that I didn't know how to improve my hand-eye coordination. He continued, most successful things I've done in my life work because I identified things that really mattered for the outcomes most people want but are hard to measure. I figured out how to measure them, which lets me improve them or at least focus on them. It's worth the time to find these things. In sports, there's a better ROI on your time spent training your eyes than anything else. So from the time my kids were little, we did hand-eye drills and I developed tests to measure their hand-eye coordination. And each kid has gotten an athletic scholarship and none were the fastest or the tallest or the strongest but they had the most perceptive dad. And yes, I know this is the second podcast in a row that's prominently featured eyesight, and I agree, it's weird. I don't know what else to tell you. But the last thing the eye guy said is what really matters here. The secret, he said, is that I'm actually extremely lazy by nature. I want nice things. I want my kids to achieve. I want my businesses to be successful. But I don't want to sit in an office 13 hours a day, and I don't want my kids to have to practice shooting 10 hours a day. I like asymmetries. I like figuring out what matters disproportionately and then doing it because, and here's the secret to life. He threw himself back in his chair and waited for a few dramatic seconds while I realized that this was like the third or fourth quote secret to life he told me in the last 10 minutes. 
Everyone would rather do the same thing other people do and get shitty results than do something different and get great results. Don't be in the first group. Take the time to figure out the things that matter, then do them. Be in that second group. And now, I gotta go. And he shut off his Zoom. What a showman. And what a great way to think about that first email. I spent a ton of time the last few weeks thinking about our successful businesses and the asymmetries they've benefited from. I landed on three. They'll ensure you're building a business worth your time and I think dramatically cut down the amount of time that that business takes. And we'll get to them after an ad from our good friends at Build. This episode of Idea to Start a Podcast is brought to you by our good friends at Build. That's B-Y-L-D-D.com. They're a development agency that helps early stage startups build and launch scalable, revenue-generating software businesses. Development from non-technical founders and teams without a tech person on them is the massive elephant in the room that just sits there judging you while you run all of your customer work and intent tests. And once you've validated your idea and you know that customers want what you've decided to build, you've got to figure out how to build it. That's where things get sticky. You probably don't have 100K to throw at a huge creative agency, and even if you did, for your first product, you probably shouldn't. You might roll the dice on Upwork, and it might work, but you'll need to project manage the whole thing. The cost will be a black box, and I cannot stress enough the might in that first sentence. For 10K and roughly a month of work, Build will get your validated product up and out. We've advertised Build a few times, and the one question we've been asked is, can companies that work with them end up growing big? The answer is absolutely. They've worked with companies that have gone on to Y Combinator and raised money at 10-figure valuations. Build is the way to get your first product built, and that product can lay the infrastructure and the foundation for any size company. Head to build.com to talk to Ayush. That's B-Y-L-D-D.com, and tell them you heard about it through Idea to Startup. Back to it. Great markets, the 4X rule, and status level hopping. I've got a master spreadsheet with the hundreds of founders we work with, and I've got a ton of characteristics logged for each. I rate things about their business, their customer, their progress. The goal is to be able to look at a big enough sample size, now closing in on 500 startups, and see what actually matters. Eventually, I'm hoping to build a whole investing thesis around this spreadsheet where money is allocated to startups without them even needing to pitch me. But we'll get there. For today's pod, I wanted to look at the first principles of our most successful businesses, and I came up with three. And I'll warn you, they're kind of obvious, but when I tested them with our current founders, they got enormous value out of them. And the devil is firmly in the details and the framing. I think this will be helpful. So let's get to it. Here they are. Your startup will be more successful and take you less time if, first, you choose a great market, second, you grow through word of mouth, and third, you immediately have high margins with your product. And that's it. Well, yeah, Brian, obviously, but how do I do those things? Glad you asked, because that's kind of what the whole podcast is about. We'll start with market. This section could be five words long. Don't pick a bad market. But in my experience, people cannot stop picking bad markets. And here, I think, is why. They just assume that they can brute force their way through it. Founders hear so frequently how long their odds are and how hard this will be that I think they can't differentiate between things that are hard but possible and things that are hard but impossible. The market thing, I'm ready to say, is impossible. You cannot brute force your way through a bad market. 
If your market isn't default growing, if it doesn't have customers that are accessible, willing to pay, already paying to solve the problem you're solving, valuing that problem highly and getting fantastic outcomes when the problem is solved, and constantly talking about that problem. If the market isn't predicted to grow 5x or 10x in the next few years, make like the best song released in 2006 by the criminally underrated band The All-American Rejects and move along. The opportunity simply isn't worth your time. If customer interviews for your market are exceedingly hard to get, if customers don't really seem to care all that much or don't know they have a problem, if the problem after you solve it won't change their life, move along. By the way, when I googled the All-American Rejects to find out what year that song was written, the first thing that popped up was, quote, whatever happened to the All-American Rejects? And to that, I say, how dare you? Nothing happened to them. They live on my running playlist. That's what happened. Jerks. Anyway, I've watched tons of great entrepreneurs spend months or years beating their heads against the wall trying to figure out how to navigate through a bad customer or market, thinking effort on their end is the problem. It isn't. I've also watched average, and that is being kind, entrepreneurs choose a growing market and ride the wave to customers and funding and talent and all the trappings that come with a market that's natural state is up and to the right. The very worst part about a bad market is when a great entrepreneur gets all mixed up in it and manages to make something that treads water. Then they get funding because they're talented and maybe they convince a few smart people to work with them and the business dies a slow death over years that could have been so much better spent on a good market. Choose a market that's growing and it'll improve your chances of success exponentially and make every task you need to execute on, from acquiring customers to fundraising to hiring, exponentially easier. I've seen great markets do the heavy lifting for a woefully unprepared founder, giving them time to figure stuff out, and often they do. If you choose a bad market, you need to be exceptional, top 0.0001% and it likely still won't be enough. Don't do that to yourself. Now, let's get to the two more interesting ones, growth and margins. We'll start with growth. I listened to a podcast recently that I'll pop into the show notes, and I simply couldn't recommend it anymore. Kunal Shah was the guest on The Knowledge Project, and he did an extraordinary job of putting words and a framework around a phenomenon I've seen with our successful startups for years. I forget if he used this exact terminology, but he described what I'm thinking of as a brag coefficient, a number you can track that correlates to whether people will brag about your product or not. He estimated that at 4x, meaning on a scale of 1 to 10, the product you create needs to be 4x better than the existing solution for people to brag about it. If it is, they'll tell absolutely everyone they know. If it isn't, they won't tell anyone. This means if you're picking a business to start, you need to make sure that the solution you create is 4x better than the existing solution. You can get there in two ways. Either the existing solution is awful, like a 0 or 1 out of 10, which means you only need a 4 to get word of mouth. Or your initial product is worlds away from a pretty good solution. I advise picking the former. It'll be easier. An example of this might be DocuSign. Before DocuSign, my accountant would send me documents that I needed to print out and sign. This inevitably led to me realizing my printer was out of ink, which led to me going to Staples, which led to me needing to ask someone to unlock the ink because apparently there's a big ink theft problem, which led to me buying tricolored ink because they didn't just have black ink, which led to me remembering ink is 78 freaking dollars, which led to me installing the ink and getting it all over my hands, which led to me being mad. 
I'd rate the overall process as roughly a negative 250 out of 10. DocuSign came along and let me do it digitally. They did nothing else, just digital signatures. It was probably a 6 out of 10 in a vacuum initially because I had to sign up for an account. But I told everyone who would listen about it because it was more than 4x better than negative 250. For the record, people made fun of DocuSign early on. They currently have a $13 billion market cap. Cabs were a 2 out of 10. Uber was an 8 out of 10. Brag coefficient exploded. Do you remember how many people you told about Uber early on? Think about anything you've shared with people recently, and I guarantee the step up in value had at least a 4x. This is useful for customer segmentation and marketing early on too, and what you should be testing these things for. Let's say I figured out how to make a freeze-dried organic protein shake into the little K-cup-sized pods. They'll have protein powder and freeze-dried fresh fruits and veggies. The customer will mix them with water and have a delicious, fresh, organic protein shake on the go. The question is, for who is this a 4x step up in value over their existing routine? For who is this so good that they'll brag? That's who you need to start with because that'll offload customer acquisition to your customer. And specifically, why is it better? Is it a 4x improvement on making a shake at home? A 4x improvement on buying a shake when you work out during your lunch hour at the office, when you have kids and need a meal replacement for someone on a specific diet that has a ton of restrictions? What is it? Find the 4x improvement, market directly to that customer, get your brag coefficient, and grow. Make your life easier. Customer acquisition is hard and expensive and time-consuming. Your customer growing your business for you is none of those things. It is a true delight. And this leads nicely into the final way to generate asymmetric results. Big, fat margins. Most people misunderstand where margins come from. Really, they misunderstand pricing altogether. But margins come from one thing, status level jumps. One of the things you'll notice if you listen to the pod that I mentioned is that Kunal has an incredible way of distilling big thoughts into concise statements. That's my favorite skill in any human, and he might be the best I've ever heard at it. And one example was when he said that, quote, envy is local. I just can't get over how beautiful that statement is, and I can't get over how correct it is. We compare ourselves to the people around us, the people on our level. Companies with big, fat margins are the ones that allow us to jump levels. Harvard has ridiculously fat margins at a 52 billion dollar endowment because they allow everyone who gets into Harvard to jump levels. They're suddenly above the people that used to be to the left and right of them, and no one can argue with it. As higher ed condenses dramatically, I actually think places like Harvard, or maybe just Harvard, I'm not sure that there are places like Harvard, will become more expensive because they'll always signify a level jump. I'm actually convinced that Harvard could charge $400,000 a year and people would find a way to pay it. Margins come from level jumping. Back to cabs and Uber. Not only did Uber allow you the convenience factor, but it allowed you to level jump. You had a private car on command. I don't think I need to explain why big margins are so important, but I'm going to anyway because I think sometimes people gloss over just how important they are. When you're building a business, margin or profit margin is a measure of how much people value your output over your inputs. When all the costs of your product are accounted for, it's the amount of money you've got left over. The amount of money you have to hire or market or invest in design or product development or put into your own pocket. A big profit margin allows you to be a growing, successful business with fewer customers. And as we mentioned, 
Margins come directly from allowing people to jump levels. So your task becomes figuring out what your customers' levels are and whether or not you can help them jump above their peers. This isn't just for end users. This is for businesses too. I love this level jumping framework and I want to talk through some examples. I urge you to look around at what you own and figure out what's helped you level jump. I guarantee the products that have, have healthy margins. I also guarantee you didn't think about those margins when you made the purchase. Level jumping purchases are emotional purchases. When I'm buying an area rug for the office, I'm trying to figure out exactly how much each square foot costs and I'm comparing that to other rugs and I'm weighing features because the rug does nothing to my status level. But when I'm buying a Mercedes SUV, I'm not thinking about whether it's actually worth $30,000 more than a Honda CRV because that's not the point. Who cares? My wife and I are having a baby later this year. It's exciting and terrifying and I'm sure it'll drive tons of content. It's also giving me a crash course in status levels. The other day I bought a $235 backpack from a brand called No Reception Club solely because the whole brand seems to be focused on parents who saw themselves as explorers keeping that identity even after they have a kid. The landing page says in huge letters, made for explorers, and then underneath in smaller font in parentheses it says, with kids. The backpack description starts, the getaway bag is designed for the seasoned globetrotter who now happens to be a parent. Effortlessly fit and organize everything you need for your little one and you. Never hesitate to go on your next adventure. Is the bag worth $235? Meaning, did it cost this much to make? I doubt it. It kind of looks like a regular backpack with a bunch of compartments. I guess it cost max 20 bucks. But the company spoke to the exact moment I'm in. We're buying stuff for the baby, changing our living situation for the baby, thinking about our very different future with a baby. All things I am absurdly excited to do. But at the same time, of course, I'm worried that I'm going to lose a certain part of myself that maybe I value. And this brand came out and said, hey, don't lose yourself. And I liked that. Was I ever a globetrotter? Definitely not. But it makes me feel like I could be. It helped me level jump. I'll now be the parent that still goes to Moab, or at least could. Level jumping is almost always a feeling, a deep understanding of what your customer is really hiring your product for. If the answer is the exact specific features of your product, it's likely that you aren't helping them jump levels. If it's the type of person you're helping them become, if that's the focus and the product itself is secondary, you'll have big margins, as counterintuitive as that sounds. I don't need a backpack. I need someone to tell me that I'm still going to be able to travel with my wife once we have a baby, and I'll pay to hear it. Some rapid-fire favorites for level jumping, because I kind of love this stuff. Logo Joy used to let people get a professional-looking logo for their startup in less than five minutes for 50 bucks. That let people level jump from, I'm considering an idea, to, I have a logo and I can share it and people will take me seriously. The Uni Karoo outdoor pizza ovens make people feel a certain way, as did Shazam and the old CDRW drives that let me make mixed CDs for my friends. Waze did it and Yeti does it and tons of software for small businesses that make them feel like big businesses charge a subscription fee for it. And the point is, you've got to do it too. Big margins are the lifeblood for startups. They give you options. And sure, you can choose to fundraise and pump those margins right back into the business if you'd like. But ensuring that you're giving your customer a clear level jump will ensure that your margins are big enough to ensure that your life is much, much easier. 
So back to the asymmetries we started the pod with, the things that matter way more than other things that lots of people ignore, that'll give you a much better shot. It comes down to fundamentals that offload work that'll bog you down and decrease your chance of success. A growing market will make hiring, funding, and sales easier. A product that creates a 4x step up in value, and more because the existing solution is terrible than that your solution is all that great, will make growth easier because your customers will naturally share it. This will give you strong customer lifetime values not diluted by high acquisition costs. And a value prop that allows your customers to jump status levels will allow you to charge high margins because they'll value the why over the what, and that'll be worth a lot to them. This will give you financial flexibility to reinvest or take a salary. Your job, then, is to make sure these things exist first, before you pursue the idea. Pursuing an idea without the potential for these will make your life significantly harder. That is what creates the 100-hour weeks. And yeah, of course, this isn't going to be perfect or lined up for you from the start. But spending the time to look for it and keep it in mind as you start to build will make things more manageable on you. And hopefully allow some people who historically hadn't had the bandwidth or the risk tolerance to start a business, give them a shot. And as always, if you want some help with this, come find us. If you're working on an idea or you have an idea you want to evaluate, head to gettacklebox.com and apply. We'll get back to you in 72 hours and can be working with you in 73. Have a great week.